Have you ever thought about how our world is being shaped? Where are we headed and what might we leave behind? You're listening to Nextcasts, presented by Swissnext San Francisco, where we examine the forces shaping our emergent future through conversations with scientists, entrepreneurs, artists and designers. Hi everyone and welcome to Nextcasts. I'm Perrine and I'm your regular host. This special episode is brought to you by Benjamin Bowman, our Deputy CEO. Hi Perrine. I'm here with Jonathan Andrew, a research fellow at the Geneva Academy, which is a joint center of the University of Geneva and the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Uh, Jonathan actually just spent uh, one week touring Silicon Valley uh, together with Clément Voulet, who is the UN Special Rapporteur on Rights to Freedom of Peaceful Assembly and of Association. And uh, he will give us some insights into uh, his experience here. Good morning. Um, I'm delighted to be here at Swiss Next. Thank you very much, Benjamin, for inviting me. Jonathan, can you say a few words about your background and your work at the University of Geneva? Okay, so I've just uh, come to Geneva having uh, finished my doctoral studies at the European University Institute in Florence. And there I was working on surveillance primarily, uh, working with uh, academic, civil society institutions, European Commission, um, other organizations looking at surveillance. And I've taken on um, my work and my role at the academy to um, further work on digitization um, and the look and looking particularly at how uh, technology in- intersects with uh, human rights. So we're looking in, in part of our work, working with the University of Essex at the implications of uh, big data and data mining, uh, the use of artificial intelligence, um, and how we can begin to develop frameworks for guiding um, how we resolve uh, certain questions that arise from the use of these technologies, how we can plan for new scenarios and uh, how we can seek to adapt the existing legal frameworks on the international level, but also at the same time uh, ascertain whether we need new treaties, whether we need new laws, um, and at the regional and international level. And that's why the Academy is very well placed, being based in Geneva with our connections with the UN um, and other institutions like the ICRC, for example. Um, to bring together um, the relevant parties to further those discussions. Why is it important for a legal scholar like yourself to be exposed to Silicon Valley today? Well, I originally started my career actually working in tech in in, uh, a global corporation and through my work in, in academia and through my research, um, I've always been very fortunate to draw upon the experience I had working developing technologies. And in my sen- in in my work, it was in the financial services sector, and that provi- provided a very strong uh, foundation for understanding um, how technology develops the life cycle of development. And I think any work we do in academia on the legal side, in terms of understanding the implications of tech for, for the legal framework, um, it has to be in conjunction, it has to be conducted in conjunction with the input of technology firms. It, we cannot do that in isolation because I think it, it leads to a lot of oversights, it, lo- it leads to misunderstandings, 
Um, you need the two together. You need the cooperation. You need the engagement. You need the feedback. Um, I think we need to dedicate ourselves to expanding um, interactions. So I think SwissNext is a very good example of uh, an organization that can help in that cross-fertilization of ideas and in sharing knowledge and understanding and uh, soliciting interventions and, and guidance because I think really we'll get the in terms of research, we'll conduct far more meaningful, insightful, and relevant research with that level of interaction. Um, working in isolation will never really achieve um, what we set out to do, which is to inform debate, um, to engage uh, actors, and, and move the agenda forward. So we're here on a Friday at Swissnext, and you're just finishing a week-long tour of Silicon Valley. Could you uh, tell us more about what you did here? As part of my work at the Geneva Academy, um, I'm very fortunate to have been um, supported by the Ford Foundation to help me uh, in terms of uh, assisting the special rapporteur, Clement Voulet, who is the special rapporteur for Freedom of Assembly and Association. And as part of his mandate, he has come to Silicon Valley for consultations uh, to talk to the tech companies and also to talk to academics and civil society, nonprofit NGO groups in terms of getting their input on how digital technologies, uh, the, the internet is impacting freedom of assembly and association in the online sphere and how it impacts offline events. So how people mobilize, meet for events, meetings, uh, protests. And so I've been here in that capacity working with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and we've had a very busy week, uh, 16 different meetings with different businesses, uh, academics, uh, had a very successful event at Stanford uh, on uh, at the earlier part of the week. And um, we've had uh, an opportunity to have some very frank and uh, open discussions that have been very informative uh, for his mandate. So what is the role of technology companies in the right to freedom of association? Yes, it's been very interesting because uh, I think in the past um, we really looked at um, technology and its relationship to our privacy, individual and group privacy, and how it shaped uh, um, how we perceive privacy. Um, and we've obviously seen over the last few years many concerns raised about possible interferences in our privacy, an invasive element of technology in terms of tracking what we do. Um, the revelations by Edward Snowden really brought this to the fore and stimulated a lot of discussion in civil society and, and in governments. Um, and then more recently with, with changes in data protection law in Europe, for example, data protection has come to the fore. But other associated rights, uh, interdependent rights, so in the human rights community we recognize through the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that all the rights are uh, equally uh, valid and valuable and support one another. And so we see that freedom of association is very strongly linked to privacy and the ability of people to communicate um, safely amongst each other and, and trust those communications, but also we see how we live in a, in a world where, quite obviously, we're interconnected and we need to associate, we need to assemble, we need to discuss ideas, we need to mobilize, we need to, we have as 
really at the core of the human condition a, a, a need to associate with one another and what we've seen and what we've discussed here in San Francisco and and more broadly um, in Silicon Valley is the the importance of communication channels, social media platforms, other technologies to bring people together and to uh, foster um, communities, um, to build groups, uh, to mobilize, to raise concerns, also to share resources, uh, to make uh, interactions more efficient and build capacity in small groups, nonprofits, civil society organizations. So we see that technology in many ways is, in many ways technologies are really um, at the core of, of enabling that association. But also we found uh, through discussions uh, here in San Francisco, but also in the other consultations that the special rapporteur Clement Voulet has had with civil society groups, particularly uh, activist groups that are using the internet um, to mobilize, uh, raise awareness of human rights violations, for example, that um, monitoring of different platforms or infiltration or misuse of platforms can, can create concerns, um, particularly for, for example, for human rights defenders. Um, so a lot of concerns have been expressed and uh, by the part of civil society and as such um, one of the elements that's crucial in our discussions with tech companies is really to to see what um, understand the level of awareness of, of the value of these platforms are for civil society and and hopefully raise awareness in the tech community too of, of their role what are some examples where technology promotes the right to freedom of assembly and others where technology has perhaps a more negative impact on that right? Well, this uh, it's a very good question. And uh, one example can be, uh, I think, that's very relevant in terms of freedom of assembly and association is the use of social media platforms to, to form groups. So in our discussions uh, with civil society, we've seen that social media platforms are vital for allowing groups to mobilize, uh, plan events, uh, meet in public spaces or meet in private spaces to discuss ideas or to raise awareness and to protest and to highlight concerns to other citizens in public spaces. But then um, that's the, the plus side. But then on the, the downside, sometimes um, the use of, of the same technology can result in assemblies uh, in, in public spaces that aren't peaceful and uh, engage law enforcement, become disruptive, often violent. Um, so um, that mobilization too is, is problematic in terms of the, the perspectives and agendas of different groups and whether they're conducive to protecting the, the human rights of others in the community. Um, also, there are concerns around the surveillance by different actors, including public authorities of those platforms and using the intelligence that's gathered from those platforms to disrupt law-abiding uh, law citizens' right to peaceful assembly. So where do you draw the line between peaceful and non-peaceful or even violent assemblies online today? It's been very interesting when we talk to the tech companies um, uh, to get their feedback on, on how they see their role. Um, 
the discussion at Stanford with academics, NGOs, and, and with uh, representatives who work in the tech community was very insightful in the sense that it was highlighted um, just how powerful a role particularly social media platform, platforms play. Um, I would say that um, there's recognition that they play this role essentially of an intermediary and mediate a lot of the discussions. And the tech companies have been responsive to an extent in terms of um, responding in terms of uh, improving terms and conditions that recognize the responsibilities of those using the platforms to act in a way that's respectful of of uh, the user's rights and the rights of other citizens, not just those that use the platform, but the others in communities. But I think we've met some, to an extent we've come to a tipping point where we're beginning to see the, the limitations of that approach. So um, some of the, the discussion has been around what sort of regulation might take place in the future, what extent to which um, that will evolve, um, whether there'll be cooperation across different regions between different countries, whether that's workable. Um, so I think there's a lot of uncertainty and the tech companies now are trying to, uh, I think to an extent, catch up in terms of engaging uh, with government to address these issues so they can continue growing their businesses. And it's, it's a trade-off to an extent I think regulation will uh, inevitably uh, reduce the freedom to, to expand and explore um, their products and services, um, but also whatever approach is taken needs to be sustainable. So whatever new law, if there's new law and new regulation, it needs to be really well thought through and it needs to be technology neutral, so it needs to be adaptable, because of course the technologies keep, keep changing and evolving incredibly rapidly. So human rights, uh, including the rights to freedom of assembly, were originally developed for an analog world. Uh, public space as a concept has evolved quite uh, a lot in the meantime, moving from the physical to the digital world. Uh, I imagine that creates a certain tension between online and offline assemblies in your work, doesn't it? That's a very good point. Um, uh, a key part of the work that I'm doing at the Geneva Academy is to look at defining the notion of freedom, freedom of peaceful assembly and association in the online sphere. Uh, as you say, um, the, the notion really was developed in an analog world where traditionally people would see association between individuals, formation of groups such as trade unions, political groups, philosophical groups. Um, it very much in a, in, a, in a setting where there was a formal membership, a constitution of some sort, uh, uh, a place to, to meet uh, uh, a trade union hall or a, a civic space. Uh, that's really changed and what we've seen is though those means to come together still exist, often these groups really um, will meet only in the online sphere. So we see uh, all that when they do meet offline in public space, 90% uh, of the, the mobilization has taken place on a digital platform. So we now need to look at the existing legal frameworks um, from the international level down and, and, and understand what the implications are in terms of how we frame these rights, how we continue to protect and safeguard these rights so we can enjoy, enjoy the right to free, uh, peaceful assembly and association 
and consider whether there are any new any gaps that emerge in terms of protecting those rights. Perhaps to continue on the relationship between online and offline assemblies, uh, I know that you are looking into uh, the topic of smart cities. Uh, what are you interested in in terms of how the development of smart cities might impact the rights to freedom of assembly? Well, I think um, what's been very interesting from my initial research into smart cities and uh, I think the infographics you often see on smart cities publications are very insightful because they'll show you the 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 infrastructure, the internet of things, the the different devices, sensors, um, and touch upon uh, all the different types of activity that they can monitor: transportation, uh, agriculture and urban spaces, um, healthcare, uh, delivery of products and services. Um, public services more broadly, but very often the human element. You can see pictures of, of that depict a smart city with, with people, but not really identifying the people as individuals. And so um, what I'd like to continue doing with the re research we conduct is understand the implications of, of developing smart cities, the services within them on, um, for example, public spaces, the delineation between a private space and a public space and how that might change, how data collection and processing might influence change, perhaps change citizens' behaviors, change the way groups form or interact with one another. And I think a really, really key element of smart cities um, is to understand the impacts on different groups within society. So I'm thinking of minority groups, vulnerable people, Um, for example, the elderly in terms of their mobility and uh, it may be the case that elderly people ha are less able to interact with sensors or services. So there's less data collected on them and we don't want to see that the elderly are somehow disadvantaged because there's not the consideration of their mobility needs. Or for example, children and there are limitations specific to children in terms of how we collect their data and gaining consent and informing parents, for example. So we need to think about, for example, how civil spaces, public spaces, are conceived in relation to um, facilities that the children use, for example, schools or public transportation. So these are just a couple of examples, so we don't have a, an approach that's one size fits all, that every citizen's the same and will have the same needs. That's clearly, clearly not the case. There is currently a big debate around uh, what social scientist Shoshana Suboff calls uh, surveillance capitalism. Uh, and that is how tech companies are collecting as much data as possible about you, uh, building algorithms that can predict our behavior uh, to ultimately attempt to guide or even control our behaviors. Uh, how do you think that might play out in the context of smart cities? I think that's a really important point insofar as... Um There's a lot of research in, from, from the um, psychologists that, that shows that um, data collection and processing and the awareness of, of, of that process can have a chilling effect on people's freedom to express themselves, to behave in, the, in a normal manner. So it can result in a degree of behavior change. And um, often there may be concerns around um, the extent to which uh, a... Um, sensing technology is opaque and it's not understood w with what granularity the, the data is collected, so how detailed the information is, whether it re reflects 
or can identify a, an individual, so it becomes personal data. Um, and I think often, I would say a concern is that data be, can be repurposed later on. So we collect data for one use and then we see a technology evolve or we see our needs evolve in terms of how we process that data and what information we draw from it. So it may seem sim seemingly innocuous initially, but then we find the data is used later on and there hasn't been the engagement of, of the citizen there and their consent to, to, consent to that use. Um, so I think we need to think very carefully and we need to do a lot of uh, scenario planning to look at um, different eventualities and make sure whatever we build uh, is sustainable because clearly with smart cities the focus is on long-term uh, projects. We don't build a, a, an urban space or create um, a building for, for the purpose of six months or a year. It's not a pop-up tent that goes up and comes down in a few days. We build s spaces for that last for decades. Um, so we need to take that into consideration. To conclude, uh, we just celebrated the 70-year uh, anniversary of the Universal Decla Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, the world has changed uh, tremendously since then. Uh, do you think that human rights are still fit for the job in our digital age? I think, you know, over the years we've seen many challenges, uh, many innovations, uh, not just technology, but we've seen societies evolve, we've seen, um, uh, we've seen conflict, we've seen um, also areas of progression, uh, huge advances in science, in education in mobility, globalization, the, the role of free trade. Um, and we've always managed to, to adapt. We've always um, seen that we've a process that's iterative in terms of new law and that we can take existing legal frameworks and um, context, contextualize the, the, the changes and in, in the innovations um, in terms of uh, the safeguards we have in place. And so I think there needs to be uh, an openness to discussing um, new regulation, new laws, but also um, not a panic. I think it's wrong to 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 feel that um, we're we're operating in a in a space where anything goes. We we already have a great deal of of oversight, and so um, we need to also understand how wonderful the new technologies are, by and large, and how much they contribute to our society and how um, uh, enriching they are. So we need to find the right balance. Last but not least, how do you see the role of International Geneva and, 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 and more generally Switzerland as a global governance platform uh, moving forward and in particular with respect to the technological transformation that we're living today? Well, I think Geneva really is, is a, in a... Um, uh, is a unique entity and it has a unique role in the world in terms of, as you say, for building peace, for bringing um, people together from across the world to discuss the challenges we face as an international community. And I think uh, in, in a globalized world, we, we really need Geneva to continue uh, playing that role, uh, particularly at the intersection with technology, which is playing a greater part in everyone's lives. I think Geneva can play a uh, particularly important role in addressing issues um, that relate to technology and societies, um, particularly where we may 
overlook some of the impacts. I think uh, when we look from the business perspective, we don't always take account of uh, developing communities, uh, issues like access to water, access to food, uh, other human rights concerns. So I think uh, Geneva will um, only play a, um, a, an increasingly important role in this regard. And I think with agencies like the ITU, also the role of the ICRC in, in its relation to uh, its work in uh, conflict and, and the UN in peace building, also the World Economic Forum, the WTO. Um, really, it's uh, um, pivotal. I think I see Geneva as being pivotal in that regard. Um, and we have an awful lot of civil society groups and NGOs that are also engaged. And, and so together, I think we can help move the agenda forward in a constructive way. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to come to Swiss Next today.